so let's start um, with, with the opening verses of Psalm 89, which I've printed on the page. I will sing of the steadfast love of the Lord forever. With my mouth I will make known your faithfulness to all generations. For I said, steadfast love will be built up forever. In the heavens you will establish your faithfulness. You have said, I have made a covenant with my chosen one. I have sworn to David, my servant, I will establish your offspring forever and build your throne for all generations. So this morning, we're going to be talking about David. Um, We're going to be talking about his immediate predecessor and his son as well. We're going to be talking about um, the period in Israel's history when they are a single united monarchy. Uh, under a king. Uh, where we left off last time in the book of Judges, um, sorry, the book of Joshua, um, Israel entered the land that God had promised Abraham. Uh, and after Joshua, Israel is led by uh, a series of, of chieftains who are traditionally called judges. Uh, but they, they did a lot more than judging. They're not like a, a judge if you go to a court today. Um, in fact, most of what we're told they did is uh, military stuff. They, they went to battle. Um, so some people say, well, it's better to call them chieftains, really, than, than judges. Um, and the book of Judges, which we're sort of skipping over, uh, but the whole book can really be summed up in chapter 2 of the book. I've, I've put a little bit of it here on the handout. Uh, And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals, so other gods. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he gave them over to plunderers. Then the Lord raised up judges, or chieftains, who saved them out of the hand of those who plundered them. Whenever the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge. But whenever the judge died, they turned back and were more corrupt than their fathers, going after other gods." Uh, And and the whole book of Judges is a cycle uh, uh, over and over and over of of disobedience and then oppression by these plunderers who come into the land. Uh, Then Israel cries out to the Lord. uh, God saves them. uh, And then there's renewed disobedience until the whole cycle repeats over and over and over. Um, And it continues until uh, 1 Samuel 8, um, when... Israel asks Samuel, a prophet of God, uh, for a king. So let's, let's turn to 1 Samuel 8 in, in your Bibles. So this is, this chapter in, in 1 Samuel, uh, and we're going to be spending a lot of time in, in 1 and 2 Samuel today. These are uh, really just one book, but we separate them into two for historical reasons. Um, and it's the story of Samuel, but it's even more the story of, of David, um, who we will meet shortly. Um, so 1 Samuel 8 is a, a, a case study in idolatry, in replacing God with something not God. Um, So let's keep that in mind as we read. When Samuel, prophet of God, became old, 
he made his sons judges over Israel. The name of his firstborn son was Joel, and the name of his second, Abijah. They were judges in Beersheba. Yet his sons did not walk in his ways, but turned aside after gain. They took bribes and perverted justice. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Behold, you are old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord, and the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. According to all the deeds that they have done, from the day I brought them up out of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are also doing to you. Now then, obey their voice. Only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. So Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking for a king from them. From him. He said, these will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them to his chariots to be his horsemen and to run before his chariots. He will appoint to him for himself commanders over thousands and commanders of fifties and some to plow his ground and to reap his harvest and to make implements of war and equipment for his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive orchards and give them to his servants. He will take the tenth of your grain and of your vineyards and give it to his officers and to his servants. He will take your male servants and your female servants and the best of your young men and your donkeys and put them to his work. He will take the tenth of your flocks and you shall be his slaves. And in that day, you will cry out because of your king, whom you have chosen for yourself. But the Lord will not answer you in that day. But the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel. And they said, no, but there shall be a king over us, that we also may be like all the nations, and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. And when Samuel had heard all the words of the people, he repeated them in the ears of the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey their voice and make them a king. So, at the beginning of this story, it's reasonable for Israel to ask for a king. Uh, At the beginning, we're told that the judges of Israel at the time were corrupt. Uh, They accepted bribes, they perverted justice. But nevertheless, uh, this, this asking for a king, which might make sense is nevertheless depicted as an act of idolatry. Uh, it's, it's replacing God from being king. God, God says to Samuel, uh, they've not rejected you, but they've rejected me from being king over them. Um, Israel wants a king to be like all the other nations, we're told a few times here. But as God's people, Israel is supposed to be distinct from all the other nations. Israel wants a king to go fight their battles for them, but... In the Exodus, in the book of Joshua, which you talked about last week, God goes in before them and fights their battles. Um, and then Israel is amazingly obstinate. Uh, there, there's this, you know, from, from verse 10 all the way to 18, Samuel goes on and on and on about how awful this king is going to be. And they said, no, there shall be a king over us so that we can be like all the other nations. Uh, you know, all, the kings of all the other nations are uh, wicked and oppressive. Well, we want to be just like them. Uh, it, it's, it's really stunning. Um, 
I, I imagine perhaps I'm I'm not a father, but I imagine perhaps parents can can relate. Um, and then, as in Numbers thirteen and fourteen, which we talked about a couple of weeks ago now, uh, when when Israel says, you know, if only we had died in the wilderness, and then God lets them die in the wilderness. Uh, God ultimately gives Israel what they want here. Um, he gives them a king. So looking at this chapter and then thinking about what you know of the rest of the Bible, uh, is the kingship a good thing? That's not rhetorical. I'm, let, let's think about that. I would say not. <laughs> hmm. Why not? Because God's God of all things. Yeah. The way it should be. Right. Right. And they should have known that if they were a true child of God, people mm. of God. Right. That's certainly what's going on here in, in, in this story that we just read. Yeah. You know, a time when there was a king who came under God's authority and all the people of that to the word. Israel didn't do badly after that king. Well, when the king uh, was arrogant, didn't follow God, worshipped other gods, that the whole nation suffered. Right. So there are good kings in the history of Israel. Yeah, yeah. when God appointed them. Yeah. <laughs> and then one might recall that Jesus is the, the preeminent the climactic king of Israel. Um, so we might ask ourselves, you know, what, what's going on in the mind of God? I, I don't actually have an answer for this. But, uh, you know, because in, in here in 1 Samuel 8, the king is, it's, it's depicted as a really bad thing for Israel to have asked for a king. And yet, Jesus comes from, like, the, if you take this chapter, this asking for a king, and then draw that line out through the rest of the Bible, it ends with Jesus, uh, who is king over Israel. So uh, I, I think this is an example of, of God taking, uh, taking something really not good and working with it uh, and, and bringing about <laughs> something gloriously, wondrously beautiful uh, out, of, out of something really not good. Um, to be able to do that. Yeah. He's the only one that can. Amen. <laughs> yeah, Lord. It also shows that, I mean, God wasn't surprised by this demand. Mm. He knew that this was coming, and he knew how it would work out. Um, so, yeah, there's both the there's both the sovereignty of God in this mm. and, the, and the will of the people who at this moment are rebelling against God, but... He knows what he's going to do with it. Yeah. Eventually. Yeah. He very soon with, with David. Mm-hmm. And, and says, I'm going to establish you as king. And so, you know, then you have this sense of the kingship that's really good. Yeah. Um, yeah. 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 So David, yeah, we'll, we'll get there in a moment. But then first, actually, but, uh, yeah, yeah, quick. I just wonder, yeah. what would have happened if his sons had walked in his way. Uh, that was their major complaint. Uh-huh. I'm just curious if you have any problems. Yeah, yeah, that's a good question. You know, one, one might say, you know, what if these sons 
who were judges, had actually been upright. And then Israel didn't ask for a king because they wouldn't have no reason to because their, their current political leadership was, you know, good. And then uh, what, what about Messiah? What about Jesus, who is a king, right? What if, you can't have King Jesus if there's no kingship. Uh, so oftentimes, I think we can run into these kinds of questions about, like, counterfactuals with respect to God's plan. Like, what if uh, things had gone differently? What if uh, the Romans didn't crucify Jesus? Would our sins still be blotted away? I don't have an answer. <laughs> I, I think this is, you know, some deep mysteries in, in um, the plan of God. That the yeah. Been asked for years. Yeah. Decades. Centuries. Yeah. Yeah. Right. yeah. Two things that I'm thinking as back to what Laura said he wasn't surprised and actually Moses says when you ask for a king and I can't remember exactly where it may torn Yeah. But he does predict, you know, you're going to ask for a king. Right. And the other thing is I don't think the problem was that they asked for a king. The problem was why they asked for a king. Mm. Like all the other nations. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that is a, a good observation. You know, the, their heart posture in asking for a king is to be like all the other nations around them. And, and there's something good for us to ask ourselves here, too. Uh, will we, like Israel, obstinately choose to be like our peers, whether that's yeah, uh, if you're a student, fellow students, um, if you're working, you know, co-workers, uh, pe- people around you. Even though God has called us as the church to be distinct from the rest of the world um, in, in following the Lord Jesus. What do we pursue along with our peers, which we believe will give, you know, full life, joy, flourishing, call it what you will, the good life? Um, what are our God replacements? For Israel here in 1 Samuel 8, their God replacement is a king. Uh, we have all sorts of God replacements in, in our lives. Uh, things that uh, we imagine will, will bring us you know, lasting satisfaction that can only ultimately come from God. Um, regularly asking ourselves these sorts of questions uh, that I think emerge out of 1 Samuel 8 uh, can be can be a really powerful engine for spiritual growth in, in our own lives. Um, so uh, Samuel is totally right, and the first king of Israel, Saul, ends up being a disaster of a king, just like Samuel warns. Um, he starts out great, but we're going to skip the great stuff and look at his decisive act of his final decisive act of disobedience in uh, chapter 15. Um, uh, Sam is not with us this morning. Sam had asked about this last week, uh, this passage here. So um, Saul is commanded to go up and battle the Amalekites, um, and to devote them to destruction. Uh, thinking back to last week, what we talked about with what all that means um, in the book of Joshua, uh, he is to, he's commanded to kill King Agag, uh, the king of the Amalekites, but he doesn't. Um, so let's, let's start reading uh, from, 
1 Samuel 15, let's start reading from verse 17. Um, Samuel speaking to Saul, King Saul here, the first king of Israel. Samuel said, though you are little in your own eyes, are you not the head of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you king over Israel. And the Lord sent you on a mission and said, go devote to destruction the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight them until they are consumed. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you pounce on the spoil uh, and keep the spoil for yourself, that is, and do what was evil in the sight of the Lord? And Saul said to Samuel, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. I have gone on the mission on which the Lord sent me. I have brought Agag, the king of Amalek, and I have devoted the Amalekites to destruction. But the people took of the spoil, sheep and oxen, the best of the things devoted to destruction, to sacrifice to the Lord your God at Gilgal. Um, Then Samuel confronts him poetically and says, no, uh, you're actually disobeying. Uh, In verse 24, let's pick up. Saul said to Samuel, "Uh, I have sinned, for I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord and your words, because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. He's still blame-shifting. Now, therefore, please pardon my sin and return with me that I may bow before the Lord. And Samuel said to Saul, I will not return with you, for you have rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. Um, this is, this is a, a, a great case study in how, how to actually, or how not to repent, how not to apologize. Uh, when Saul is first confronted about his sin, he actually insists that he's not doing anything wrong. Um, he, he insists that he is, in fact, not sinning, which is ridiculous. Uh, and, he, and he knows better because uh, he's been told what he's supposed to do. Um, and then even when he's confronted the second time, he still shifts the blame onto the people. and says, well, I've obeyed their voice. Uh, I, I'm thinking back now to Genesis chapter 3 where uh, Adam and Eve both shift the blame. Uh, Adam shifts the blame onto Eve. Uh, the woman which you gave me gave me this fruit. And then Eve shifts the blame onto the serpent. Um, this happens all the time. And we don't need to think very hard to, to see this in our own world. Um, we see public apologies, if we can even call them that, uh, like this all the time. Um, as God's people, do we acknowledge our own sin, uh, frankly, and not try to self-justify? Um, and then at the end here, uh, Saul's sin is summed up in verse uh, 26 as you have rejected the word of the Lord. Um, Saul does a, a bunch of bad stuff. Uh, he treats the people pretty badly, um, the people of Israel, sort of just like Samuel says he would. But then this is ultimately what it comes down to, is you have rejected the word of the Lord. Uh, Acknowledging and submitting to the authority of God's words in Scripture is a really big deal. Um, it's critical uh, for us to be God's people. Um, and, and Saul doesn't, and that's, and that's a picture of, of you know, God rejecting Saul uh, when, when he rejects God's words. Uh, there are, I, I, this might be preaching to myself more than anyone else, but... Uh, there are sometimes, I think for a lot of us, parts of the Bible we don't very much like. But uh, if they're all God's words, then they're all, they're all important. Um, yeah, yeah. 
That's a good observation. Yeah, uh, and we see this pattern throughout the rest of the Old Testament of of um, kings being uh, when when kings do wrong and, and worship other gods. It's a, it's a really really big deal. Yeah, um, yeah. So uh, instead of Saul, God chooses David to be king. Um, I, I put the the passage there. We won't read it. Um, where, where David is anointed king. Uh, and this David is described as a man after God's own heart. Um, and, and the rest of First Samuel uh, is, is uh, an exciting and, and kind of a story uh, of, of the messy regime change between King Saul transitioning to King David. Um, if... if uh, in chapters of my life when I've found Bible reading to be difficult and tiresome, uh, these are some great places to go, because it's just an exciting story anyway. Um, and it's still God's words. Um, but then at the beginning of 2 Samuel, uh, the, the messiness of the regime change that we're just sort of skirting past uh, is over. Um, and David is secure in his kingship. Uh, and there is this uh, wonderful climactic moment that I think has already been alluded to a couple of times already this morning by some of your comments in 2 Samuel chapter 7. Uh, once David is secure, and we will read this, once David is secure in his kingship, uh, he has this encounter with God, uh, and God makes a covenant with him, um, which is so important, we need to read it. Um, so starting in verse 1. Now when the king, David, that is, lived in his house and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies, the king said to Nathan the prophet, See, now I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. Uh, and Nathan said to the king, Go, do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. Um, but that same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan. Go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, would you build me a house to dwell in? I've not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day, but I have been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all places where I have moved with the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now, therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people of Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make of you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. 
Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down uh, with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body. And I will establish his kingdom, and he shall build a house for my name. And I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words and in accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David. Uh, so this, this passage turns on a pun. Uh, and I used to wonder, is this just a pun in English or is it in, in Hebrew as well? Uh, and it, it, it is. It, it works in, he- in Hebrew. It's a pun. Uh, God, uh, David, David says, you know, I'm living in a house. God's living in a tent. And, and, and Nick's sermon is going to be all about that tent, the tabernacle. Um, so David reasonably thinks, I'm going to build God a house because I shouldn't live in a nicer place than God does. Uh, and, and that's a, that's a nice, that's a nice thought. But God says, uh, actually, you're not going to build me a house. I'm going to build you a house, not a house like a physical building, but a house like a dynasty, a family line. Um, I, I, I always thought that was really cute. Uh, how it, it, you know, it turns out. Um, the Bible is funny sometimes, you know, but at any rate, um, and God also promises peace for David and for all of Israel. Um, and keep, keep that in mind. That will come up again this morning. Uh, and, and David's offspring uh, will build God's house and will have an eternal dynasty. He will be God's son. I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. Uh, and though God will punish this, this offspring's sin, he won't reject him completely. Now, don't look at your sheet. Who is this offspring? Jesus. Yeah, that is this, you know, it, it, what is it? It's, it's a trope that, you know, whenever someone asks a question in Sunday school, the answer is always Jesus. Um, that is what is often taught, and ultimately, it's right. I, I do want to establish that. I'm not trying to say that this isn't about Jesus. Nevertheless, let's think about this for a moment. God says, when he sins, I will punish him. Did Jesus sin? Great. (laughs) Amen. Uh, (laughs) Jesus didn't sin. Uh, So one might be wondering, how could this be about Jesus? But then, also, he will build a house for my name. Now, if you know the rest of the story here, Solomon, David's son, his immediate descendant, builds God a house. Um, He builds the temple. And yet, New Testament authors... Um, like, for instance, I put, I put uh, Hebrews chapter 1, verse 5. New Testament authors cite this very chapter, for, uh, 2 Samuel 7, and say this is about Jesus. Were they wrong? Did the New, Te- 
do the inspired New Testament authors not know their Bible as well as we do? Uh, no, <laughs> no. I, I, I really want to make sure I'm, I'm not suggesting I'm not suggesting that this is not about Jesus the Messiah. And yet, I think this can be a really good case study in how do we how do we read and understand texts in the Old Testament that. Uh, that New Testament authors say are messianic, say they refer to Jesus. Um, Because oftentimes, uh, if you look at those texts in their own context, on the face of it, they don't really seem to be about Jesus. Uh, Another great example, which I won't talk about this morning because it would take an hour, uh, is, is, uh, Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son. Well, we, we read that every, every, and they should call his name Emmanuel. We read that every Christmas. Uh, and yet, if you look at it in Isaiah chapter 7, it doesn't really seem to be about Jesus because it's given as a sort of sign for King Ahaz to reassure him. Well, Jesus being born long after Ahaz is dead and buried, uh, you know, food for worms, well, that's not really a good sign for him, right? Uh, uh, Maybe I shouldn't have brought that up. I don't mean to introduce turmoil. I do think that is ultimately about Jesus. Uh, but uh, oftentimes we, we find ourselves uh, uh, thinking, well, these Old Testament texts that we say are about Jesus in their own context don't really seem to be necessarily. Um, so I think uh, we cannot read these as just isolated verses, as a kind of like a single verse that operates as a kind of a proof. This verse proves that Jesus is Messiah. Um, this isn't how New Testament authors read their Bibles. Uh, it's, it's not wise for us to either. Um, we should look at it in the broader context of the entire uh, book of the Bible. Uh, in this case, the book of First and Second Samuel, which we'll do as we, as we continue this morning. Um, it's also uh, in God's kindness towards us, uh, God has given us not just um, you know, individual passages like this, but in the Bible, just within the Old Testament even, God has given us uh, inspired, authoritative commentary on earlier texts in the Bible. Um, so late, yeah, later texts in the Old Testament refer to earlier texts in the Old Testament and interpret them for us. Uh, and that interpretation is divinely inspired because it's in the Bible. So that's, that could be really helpful for us. Um, uh, in, I put a text here from Jeremiah 23. Uh, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely, and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. Uh, you know, when, when uh, Babylon comes and smashes up Jerusalem... And, the, and it seems that the monarchy is completely dissolved. Israelites are looking back on 2 Samuel 7 and reading the same text in light of their current circumstances. They, they think, uh, hold on, God. You said that, there would be, that David would have an eternal dynasty. But Jerusalem has just been destroyed, and we're all in exile, and there's no king in Jerusalem. Uh, it seems that David's eternal dynasty is over. What gives? Uh, and then in light of that, uh, 
the Israelites realize, well, that must mean that there will be uh, a new David coming who will restore the, 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 the Davidic line, will restore the monarchy, uh, and he shall execute justice uh, and righteousness in the land. Um, and then in light of those changing circumstances, is, uh, Israelite authors realize this is actually uh, on one level about Solomon, but on a, on a deeper level about this coming uh, deliverer who will restore this eternal dynasty. Um, d- does that does that make sense? Uh, any questions there? I don't know how clear I speak sometimes. Oh. Just an observation. I, I think it's fascinating. I do agree with you. Like these threads, you see them as you put them together, and they make these connections where you think. In any isolated text, you might go, well, the evidence isn't like overwhelmingly convincing that this is a messianic text. Then you start to read these and you put them together and you think, there's actually a, a progression of thought and a connection here that's really powerful. I think it's also interesting in 2 Samuel that, and I think you see this often in some of the most key texts, where it almost seems like when God is promising things to his people, he's promising some things that are going to be fulfilled more immediately and some things that there's just no way. You know, the promise that they're going to have rest from all their enemies, does that ever happen in the history of Israel? So, so, so you see, even embedded in this, that God is saying, yes, there's going to be a son, Solomon, who will build a house, and he will be disciplined by me. But then there are other parts of it, you just think, this is pointing to a, a further horizon. And God embeds some of that, even in the text itself, it makes you think, gosh, I wonder what this is pointing to. And then those threads start to give answers in richer ways. Mm -hmm. (coughs) And and this is something that happened, this isn't just a a phenomenon unique to the Bible. This this actually happens in all sorts of of completely secular literature. Uh, If you read Orwell's novel 1984 today, when we have uh, social media and... Uh, Amazon Alexa speaker listening to you in your home and serving you advertisements. If you, I saw this YouTube video. Never mind. Um, that's that's a rabbit trail. Um, uh, you know, 1984 takes on a kind of a you know with its surveillance state uh, takes takes on a, a new kind of depth of meaning in in light of the changing circumstances. You know. um, or uh, Mar- Margaret Atwood wrote this novel, uh, A Handmaid's Tale, uh, decades ago. Um, well, and I, I think they made a Hulu TV series out of it. Um, that my mother watches. Uh, she told me about it. Uh, well, reading that today, uh, in light of the hashtag Me Too movement, uh, feels, I, I imagine, I, haven't, I, I read it in college, uh, I, I imagine it feels rather different reading it today in, in light of Me Too um, than, than it did when it was first written you know, decades ago, I think in the 80s. Uh, so I, I bring those up as examples. Um, uh, or, or Captain America. Here's, here's my hip. Uh, Marvel makes billions of dollars. Here's my hip pop culture reference. Um, you know, Captain America was invented in 1940 uh, as like this super nationalistic you know, figure. Uh, but then later on, decades later, Watergate happens, the Vietnam War happens, uh, uh, comic book writers um, sort of creatively re-understand, uh, reappropriate this figure of Captain America uh, to be a, a kind of a conflicted figure in light of, uh, you know, how can some, uh, in, in light of uh, the changing 
circumstances and the political realities of the United States. I, I bring those up as examples. This isn't just something that happens in the Bible, but um, in, in all sorts of literature. Um, and so when we, all that to say, when we see um, a, a text in the Bible, um, whether it's about Messiah or not, actually, it, it can help to look at how the rest of the Old Testament sort of interprets that passage um, to see how, how their understanding of it develops. Uh, and it even continues to develop after the Old Testament was all written. I have a text here from the Dead Sea Scrolls um, that cites 2 Samuel 7 and said, this refers to the branch of David uh, who will arise in, in the last days. Um, it, it doesn't get any more explicit than that. Uh, you know, th- this was understood very explicit to be this, this is about Messiah, um, the branch of David. Um, there, are, there is a fantastic, very worshipful book uh, that I read recently all about um, finding Messiah in finding Jesus in, in the Old Testament um, that I'd be happy to point you to if this is a, a topic of some interest to you. Um, but then after this high point of well, before, before I move on. Uh, any any thoughts, questions? Yeah, Tyler. Uh, just briefly, I think the, the way you interpret the Old Testament is so critical for us. Uh, I'm just thinking of the way Jesus, after he rose again, he started with Moses and, and the prophets and interpreted all things concerning himself. So the first thing he did with the apostles is like teach them to read the Bible in this way. Yeah. And it just underlines how important for us is to understand the Old Testament what Jesus came to do. So when you separate the two, you kind of lose the, the meaning of all that Jesus was accomplishing when he died. Hmm. Yeah, yeah. This is in like Luke 24, the, the road to Emmaus, uh, where Jesus teaches um, the apostles how to read the Bible, everything referring to himself. Yeah. Um, so after this high point of 2 Samuel 7, the rest of David's life fails to realize this vision um, in this, in this uh, covenant. Um, beginning with this atrocious sin in, in 2 Samuel 11, um, uh, this David and Bathsheba incident. Um, so usually in the ancient world, kings are depicted as the idealized, you know, almost semi-divine kind of figures. Uh, not so in the Bible. Um, you know, all people, including and especially the powerful, are, are subject to to divine justice in in the in the biblical worldview. Um, let's uh, let's let's read Second uh, Samuel eleven, um, and I and I might skip bits of it uh, for the sake of time. Now, in the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab, his servants, with him, and all Israel. And they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained at Jerusalem. It happened one late afternoon, uh, when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house, that he saw from the roof a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful. 
And David sent and inquired about the woman. And one said, is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah, the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness. Then she returned to her house. And the woman conceived, and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. So David sent word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent Uriah to David. Uh, And then uh, for a while here, David tries to get Uriah to go down to his house to sleep with his wife. Uh, But he refuses. Um, So then picking up in verse 14, uh, in the morning David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. In the letter he wrote, set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting and then draw back from him that he may be struck down and die. And as Joab was besieging the city, he assigned Uriah to the place where he knew there were valiant men. And the men of the city came out and fought with Joab, and some of the servants of David among the people fell. Uriah the Hittite also died. Uh, then Joab sent word of this back to David. Um, then in verse, picking up in verse 26, when the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she lamented over her husband. And when the morning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. So we're told that it's the time of year when kings go out to battle. But the king of Israel is chilling out in Jerusalem, uh, apparently bored out of his crock because uh, he's, he's not using his time diligently. He's not doing what he should be doing. So he's pacing up on the roof. Um, and from there, he sees this woman, Bathsheba, who um, is unfortunately abused and misrepresented in, sometimes in church teaching. So I, I translated this chapter in, in my Hebrew class uh, this past year at seminary. And so I talked with a bunch of my fellow students about how they've heard this text taught. Uh, and, and sometimes it's taught that Bathsheba is bathing on the roof, thereby trying to seduce David. That is not what's going on here. Uh, I, I don't know where that idea comes from, but uh, the cynical part of me has some, has some uh, guesses. But um, verse 2 is unambiguous, especially in Hebrew. Uh, David's on the roof. We're not told where Bathsheba is bathing, presumably not on the roof, because that's a rather odd place to bathe. Um, we're given no hint that she's trying to seduce David. Uh, she is not culpable here. Um, sometimes this incident is depicted as a, as a wholly consensual affair. Um, frankly, I, I think particularly in light of, of this Me Too thing that I, that I had already mentioned, um, we ought to recognize that the power differential between King David, uh, the king, uh, and this woman Bathsheba is, is so great that, that it makes any consent fraught. Uh, we're, we're given no hint that Bathsheba's culpable for, for this. David is in the wrong, full stop. Um, and if, if you find this reading this narrative troubling, uh, you're not, I think that's understandable, uh, particularly because Bathsheba is denied a voice by the narrator, which actually sort of makes sense because this isn't about her. She's not the one doing the wrong. Um, it's about David sinning. Nevertheless, she's, she's given only two words. Um, I'm pregnant in, in the whole story. Uh, she's even denied a name, instead being called the woman, or, or she's referred to repeatedly by, by her relation to men in her life, like the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Uh, 
so if you find this reading this troubling, you're not alone. Um, a number of, of women in my in my Hebrew class actually found this really troubling. Um, so I just wanted to mention that. Um, but this is a story about David messing up. Uh, ultimately, it's made clear in verse four. So just to get the the flow of the narrative straight, it's made clear in verse four uh, that she that Bathsheba is not pregnant to begin with, but then she gets pregnant, which presents a problem for David because he has to cover up his adultery, and, and I think it's not wrong to say rape, frankly. Um, so first, he brings Uriah back and tries to get Uriah to, to sleep with her, because then if, if they spend the night together and then she, she's pregnant, then David's off the hook. Uh, but Uriah is more righteous than David, and he refuses, because he says, well, I, I should be off at battle anyway. What, what am I doing here? Um, so then he gets Uriah killed. Uh, it's very crafty. It's very clever. Uh, our our cover-ups of our sin can often be uh, more sinful even than the sin to begin with. Uh, and that's in, 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 in covering up his sin, David multiplies his sin. And we're told that God, in, in no uncertain terms, that God is displeased with, with this state of affairs. Um, he, Nathan the prophet confronts uh, David about this in chapter 12. Um, and, and we're told uh, that the consequence for, the, for this will be that there, in chapter 12, verse 10, therefore the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me, um, God says. Uh, so recall that uh, peace had been promised for Israel. Now the sword is never departing from David's house. David, in his sin, disqualifies himself from the promises of God uh, on, on one level. Um, but then notice the difference in David's repentance compared to Saul's that we read before. David simply says, chapter 12, verse uh, 13, I have sinned against the Lord. In Hebrew, that's just two words. He doesn't try to justify himself. He just acknowledges, I've sinned. Uh, he doesn't try to shift blame. It's only I that have sinned. Um, unlike Saul, David rapidly recognizes his, his sin and quickly repents. In, in, in this sense, he can be called a man after God's own heart. Not that he's any less sinful. In, in fact, David is, is uh, not, not a great guy, right? Uh, but he recognizes quickly his sin um, and, and turns away from it. In that sense, he can be called a man after God's own heart. Uh, this is a model for, for our own apologies, our own repentance, um, our own confession of sin to God. Simply, I have sinned against the Lord. Full stop. Um, and this sword never departing from his house is exactly what happens. Um, his sons die. Uh, his, his last son, generations later, Jesus, is crucified. Um, and much like Israel in, chapter, in Numbers 13 and 14, like we talked about a couple weeks ago, David disqualifies himself from a promise of God, that promise for peace. Uh, but then what about the rest of the promises for the eternal dynasty? Uh, you know, is that also jeopardized? Well, later on, I give some references. David seems to think maybe that that is the case. Um, and even at the, da- the end of David's life, I give a verse there, uh, we're reminded of Uriah the Hittite in a listing of David's mighty men. Uriah the Hittite is put very last, reminding the reader, David screwed up big time. Uh, 
all of David's life, and in Solomon's as well, which we unfortunately can't get into, uh, fails to realize the vision of 2 Samuel 7. Um, and so First and Second Samuel present us with a question at the end of it. If David and Solomon, uh, two of the greatest kings in Israel's history in the Old Testament, fail to fulfill this vision uh, of God's covenant with David, who will? Uh, and that, that is the Sunday school answer of Jesus. Um, right, so we're, we have like two minutes. Uh, I tried to crunch more into this this morning than we really had time for, forgive me. Um, but any parting thoughts or questions? Yes. So I have heard several times the um, when the kings go out to war and David's not going out to war and so that's the beginning of the problem. However, if you read I think for example the sequence, you find that shortly before this, his leadership says you can't go out to battle, you might get killed. And so mm. it's his leadership that's actually kept him home. He obviously just used the time. Mm-hmm. But it's not that he shirking his responsibility, it's that the leaders under him have said, we can't afford to take you out to battle. That might be so. Yeah, that might be so. Uh, in which case, forgive me for misteaching. <laughs> yeah. Um. All right, it's 9.50. So let let me pray briefly. Um, Lord, uh, thank you that you instruct us in your word on on how to respond to our sin. Uh, May we be like David in quickly recognizing and turning away and and not shifting blame. Um, And Lord, as we go upstairs to worship that great son of David, Jesus, um, thank you. Uh, that you have given us uh, a great king um, who fulfills that vision of, of your covenant with David. Um, and give us, we, I pray, uh, hearts of worship to him, in whose name we pray. Amen.